right? Like, let's look at the good old days. I used to know a guy who would regularly complain about the lack of morality and about our culture, right? He'd just constantly complain about our political leaders and the media and technology and the youth of today and just how immoral everything was, just nonstop complaining about it. You see, he, used to, he, he saw this as something that was unique to our culture now. Like, this is 2000s, it's unique to this. But it's interesting that if we look back at, at like, cultural reviews and, and things that pastors and spiritual leaders used to write about the culture 50 years ago, and in the past, it's interesting to see that some of the same things were around. Our tendency is to look at the past through rose-colored glasses, to look with fondness about what the past used to be like. But that's just not the case. I'm not trying to sit here and say that our culture today is better than it was 50 years ago. God, no, like it is not better. It's, it's only getting worse. But I'm just saying it wasn't that great 50 years ago. Consider how many people look back at the 1950s as the, the leave it to beaver time, right? The, the golden era of family values and godly culture. That was the, that was the pinnacle, right? The 1950s, that was the, the great time. Now, while it was good times if you were a white middle class person living in suburban areas, they were hardly the glory days for black families living in the last fragment of segregation and Jim Crow laws. I wonder if the former hippies of the 60s have forgotten or simply just romanticized the indulgent and violent days of their teens and their life. Political leaders and presidents were shot at and assassinated almost as often as rap artists were when I was a teenager. An unpopular war cost us 58,000 American lives. Hallucinatory drugs and promiscuous sex were celebrated as the path to enlightenment. And race riots set major cities aflame. The good old days, right? I point all this out not to knock the generation that came before us. I'm not trying to make fun of the, the generation that led us to where we are today. They, they set up a foundation for us, and we are thankful for that. But all I'm trying to say is that living a godly life has never been easy. Living a courageous, godly life has never been easy for Christians. And today we're going to finish the, the narrative section of the book of Daniel. But before we dig into this passage, we're gonna, I'm going to give a short history lesson, and I'm going to skip the first few verses and just kind of cover that with my short history lesson. But we're seeing that just like us, things have never been easy for Daniel. So as we read this book, it appears to go from like one story to the next, right? We just go chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and it's just big story, big story, big story. And it looks like it's just continuing along at a pretty fast pace, like maybe a short period of time. But the reality is that by this point, by Daniel chapter six, we've covered almost 60 years of history. That means that Daniel is probably now around 80 years old, 80 to 90 years old. Now, we don't know that just by reading this book. You can't just read chapter 6 and it says 90-year-old Daniel did this. We know it because of learning and researching ancient history, historical truth 
that was written at the time too. We can look back at history and we can know when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem. That is written in history books, in the Bible and in other history books. We know when those dates were. So we know that when Daniel was taken out of exile. And then we can also look and see when the Medo-Persian army invaded Babylon and took them over. Again, historically, we look back and we have the dates for when this happened. So because of that, we can look and say, yeah, this has been a 60-year. We can look back and see when Darius and Cyrus and all of these names that pop up in our Bible, we can fact-check that with historical documents and see all this to be truth. And we can get a timeline for this book. So here we have 80-year-old Daniel. This is the third wicked king that Daniel has served. He's still somehow in a prominent position in government. He's still living in exile. And he's still dealing with the same stuff that he's been dealing with most of his life. At this point, I think my faith and my perseverance might start to, to waver a little bit. Right? It's, it's, it's easy to deal with trouble and suffering and persecution for a few months, right? Just, it's easy to do that. No, it's not. But 60 years of dealing with some of the most wicked nations in all time, the Babylonians and the Persians were horribly wicked people. And this is where Daniel lived for 60 years. I think my, my faith and my trust that God was going to care for me would start to waver a little bit. But not Daniel. And in this story, in this chapter today, we're going to see Daniel's three-step process to how to start a revival. Hey, it's just that easy, right? Three easy steps to start a revival. We're going to see how Daniel does it, and we're going to see how to do it ourselves. So we're going to skip the first few verses, but follow along as I jump right in. And I'll go through one by one and show us those three easy steps to starting a revival. So starting at verse 6 is where we're going to start. It says, Then the presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition, that's praying, makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So step one in our three-step process, expect trouble. If we are going to live a courageous life and we're going to live in a, in a culture that at times is against what we believe, we need to know that trouble is going to come. As he stated in, in the introduction, the world is getting worse. And it did for Daniel as well. The world around us is getting more and more anti-Christian. But that's nothing new. The world getting more and more anti-Christian is, is nothing new for us. It was that way for Daniel too, for the years he lived there. And for everyone around there, we can follow the Bible. It just becomes more and more anti-Bible, anti-Christian, anti-God. 
And more and more persecution and suffering comes in the way of these people. Daniel is once again facing the the same issues that he has for the other six verses. Or six chapters. We're not going to spend a ton of time in these verses. Because it truly is just same story, different chapter. Persecution, perseverance, pressure, all of that again. Some of the same stuff we talked about in that first verse, or first chapter. Daniel is once again facing racial prejudice, political corruption, scheming. See, Daniel was a good person, and he served the king well. He probably made the rest of the presidents and the rest of the officials, the government officials, look bad because he was such a good servant. We saw back in chapter 1 that Daniel was offered one of some of the finest foods in the kingdom. Right? And we thought that seemed like, oh, it's a good thing. Like he's, You would think a, a Jew in Babylon, that would be hard. But as we look at it, he got to live in the temple and the castle, and he got a good job, and, and he got the finest meats. And we see just over and over again, last week in Daniel 5, he's given this high authority position and these wonderful clothes. And we think that that might be a good thing. But pastor, theologian, author Sinclair Ferguson, he he pointed out what was actually going on in Daniel receiving all of this stuff from these kings. He says, the good life Daniel was offered was intended by the king to lead him away from the hard life that God had called him to. That life was a life of faithfulness, sacrifice, and service, of being different for goodness sakes. That is what the other officials didn't like. They didn't like someone working next to him who was faithful, who lived sacrificially, who was different than them, didn't just give in to any sort of political corruption, didn't try to get with the king's concubines and and try to steal money from him. He was good and he was different. And if we hope to start a revival like Daniel will... We need to be different also. We need to have a life of faithfulness. We need to live sacrificially. We need to serve others. But with that, with living differently, we need to expect that trouble will come. It's true. It's just going to happen, just like it did for Daniel. So as we move into the next section, we're going to see how the trouble how Daniel deals with this new law that has been put on him. And we'll see what his step two for this revival is. So starting at verse 10, follow along as I read a longer section this time. It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that everyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. 
Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, No, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persian that no injunction or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. I'll just pause real quick right there. What a ridiculous law. Like, I, I thought these guys were like all powerful. They try to make themselves like gods in Persia and, and Babylon, but yet he, he can't even revoke the laws that he just signed. Like, what? That just seems absolutely ridiculous to me. But moving on, 16 says, Then the king commanded. And Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of the Lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Step two. And how to start a revival, we need to decide who we will obey. Who will you obey? God or man? We look at this story as one of a defiant nature, right? Daniel, the rebel prayer warrior. We say things like, Daniel, we, we be a Daniel, pray dangerous prayers. That's what's going on here, right? This rebel this defiant nature of Daniel. Maybe you actually look at the story with a little more cynicism. That is the route I almost always take when I read it. Every time I read this story, I get a little cynical. And I'm like, Daniel, you knew the law. You knew what was going on. Why didn't you just go into your prayer closet? Did you really have to sit in front of your windows and open the windows for everyone to see? And three times a day, what, you're just trying to get caught. What in the world is going on? I was even reading one commentary and they pointed out that the law wasn't exactly, it wasn't that you, you had to pray to Darius. It was that if you prayed, it had to be to Darius. So he literally could have just not prayed for 30 days. I think God would have understood that, right? Like, hey, God, I really want to pray to you, but they made this ridiculous law. So I'm going to go ahead and just fast from praying for 30 days and I'll be back. I'll come back and I'll be there. I think God would have understood that. Or maybe what about, you know, Matt brought this up. When we we're talking about maybe you just pray quietly in your head, Daniel. Like what? What is going on here? Why do you have to sit here for everyone to see you? The best part of this whole chapter to me is verse 10. The last line, last four or five words in verse 10. As he had done previously. This is not some bold act of rebellion. It is simply who Daniel was. This was his character. He was a man of prayer. And this is the manner that he had always done it. And he knew that especially, you know, I said, maybe his faith would be wavering by this point. No. Because of this. Because throughout everything, throughout wicked kings and lion's den and friends getting thrown in the fiery furnace and all of these horrific things going on around him, he was connected to God through prayer. And he wasn't going to let something like this stop the way that he had always done it. As he had done previously. 
So, of course, the spies, you know, catch him and they report it to the king. But then again, this is where it gets interesting again. Because then it says that Darius was distressed. Well, that, that's vastly different than what we've seen before. You know, very different from back in chapter 3 with the fiery furnace and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, when, when Nebuchadnezzar found out what they had done, he became even more furious and flew, out of, flew off the handle and threw them in the furnace. Where Darius becomes so distressed, so distressed that once he even throws him in the lion's den, he goes all night long, can't eat, can't sleep, can't do anything. He's beside himself. Why? Why such a different reaction from these two? Maybe one king is nicer than the other. I don't think that's it. Darius was distressed as he realized that he had been tricked by the other officials. And that now one of his most trusted servants was going to die. He loved Daniel because Daniel was such a, a trusted servant. Now this brings up a, a good kind of side question for us to just ponder. Uh, not really the main point, but just something I want all of us to be pondering as we think through this. Are there any non-Christians in your life? who would be distressed, or other translations say, deeply moved. Are there any non-Christians in your life who would be deeply moved if you got in trouble for following your beliefs? Maybe a question is, are you even friends with any non-Christians? Maybe that's a first question to ask. And then the question of, would they, be, would they even care? If you were to get in trouble, like, right, if you were at work and you're reading your Bible and praying and somebody saw it and they went to your boss and they're like, I don't like this. You need to make him stop. And they came to you and they're like, hey, you need to stop praying at work. And you're like, no, I'm going to keep praying because this is who I am. This is what I, I need to do in order to follow God and follow Jesus. And you got fired. Would anyone care? Now, maybe that's more of an indictment of the people around us than you per se as well. But just something to just be pondering, like. Would people care if we got in trouble for following our beliefs? And have you ever had to make a choice of who you are going to follow? Who you are going to obey? You know, who are you going to obey? Man or God? And what choice did you make? While reading this passage and prepping for this sermon, I thought a lot about this idea of obeying God versus man and just different times in my life. I've had to make different choices. But then I remembered an email that I had recently received from one of our missionaries. I'm going to have a small section of that email behind me, and I'm not going to read it out loud. And I'll tell you, it is not just poor grammar. It's written this way. And I want you just to read it as, if you can, read it as I talk. I love receiving emails from this young man because they are all written like this. It makes me feel like I'm some sort of like secret spy when I get these emails. Like I got to go get my decoder ring and like try and figure out what he's trying to say. I love them. Where this young man is at, there are aspects of our faith that force him to choose to follow man or God. And when he communicates, he has to communicate in this way. And it's why I'm not going to, our sermons are online, so I'm not going to read it out loud. Because everything is watched in the country that he's in. They're, they're watching him and they're checking his emails for anything that may alert to what's going on. 
It's illegal for them to congregate for worship outside of the state-issued church. It's illegal for him to simply be a missionary in that country. I heard a story from somebody else that went to the same country that he's at, and, and they got in trouble just for listening to worship music in their dorm room out loud. Now, worst case scenario for this young man would be that if he was caught, he would be sent home. But in other countries, the punishment is much worse. If Christian missions are caught, if Christian missionaries are caught in some Muslim countries, it can result in imprisonment, torture, and possible death. But God commands us to go to the end of the world, to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Son, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, to teach them about the cross and the forgiveness and the salvation that we can all receive. God commands us to do that. So our missionary and hundreds just like him have to make the active choice who they are going to obey, God or the laws of the country that they are in. So who will you choose to obey today? God or man? God commands us. We, we aren't going to have to face this kind of situation, right? You're not going to be thrown in prison tomorrow for praying or for being here at church. But there are daily things that we have to choose if we're going to obey God or man. God commands us to love our neighbors, to pray for those who have hurt us. To give generously, just to be here. God commands us to be here. In Hebrews, he says, do not forsake the gathering of believers. The man tells us to hold grudges, to live selfishly, and that you don't actually have to be here to worship God. Who are you going to choose to obey today? We will see from this next section what the result of Jan- Daniel's choice was. Obviously, he chose to obey God, not the laws of the land. And we're going to see how that played out for him. So follow along as I read our, our final section, starting at verse 19. It says, Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and language that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus. 
Step three, and how to start a revival. Be ordinary. That's not something you hear often, right? Be ordinary. Just be ordinary. Ordinary people can do extraordinary things. We see in this passage, in these last few verses, and even in the verses before, the ordinary behavior of Daniel. He has just spent a night in the lion's den and lived through it, and his response is so humble. I, I think, what would my response be if the king came running up and was like, hey, you like, yeah, I'm still here. Get me out of here. But Dan was just like, oh, king, I, I did nothing wrong. Yep, I'm good. Oh, king, live forever. He's so humble. Some people may read this passage and think that maybe Daniel wasn't eaten because the lions weren't hungry, right? You, skeptics will read it and be like, oh, maybe they were just fed right before this. So that's just why they weren't hungry because lions won't eat unless they're hungry. Well, yeah, whatever. But we can clearly see that this just isn't true when his accusers are thrown in the den. Before they even reach the bottom of the den, the lions are devouring them. This was a miraculous act of God protecting Daniel from harm. And as Daniel, or as God rescued Daniel from all of his tri- trials, from chapter 1 to the end of the book, all of his trials Daniel has been rescued from by God, so also Jesus secures our deliverance. He has secured it in the cross and the resurrection. And we can follow in his example and we can face every single hardship with hope, humility, and wisdom. And that is what we are called to do. That is what Matt said at the beginning. But that's not just for coronavirus today or H1N1 today. Whatever it is, whatever thing we are facing, we can face it with hope, humility, and wisdom. Because we know that God is in control and he will deliver us through it. Now, this punishment that gets given to the accusers can also seem very harsh, right? Why the families? What was the purpose of the families as well? What did they deserve to, to, what did they do to deserve this extreme punishment? It seems cruel to us that the families were destroyed along with the conspirators. But this was just simply an official Persian law. And, And the accusers knew it. They knew what could happen if they were figured out to be falsely accusing or conspiring against government officials. Eastern rulers, the Persian rulers, wanted to make sure they didn't want any remaining family members of a traitor's family to live. So that the family members would then maybe conspire to kill the ruler who then ordered the father's execution. It was easier to bury corpses than to keep an eye on potential assassins. And, and quite honestly, it put fear into the hearts of other potential troublemakers. But then we see Darius' reaction to this whole event. Here we have another pagan ruler making a decree about the God of Daniel. And this is where we can see the revival This is the revival that I'm talking about when I read this chapter. This is now the second time that an ungodly ruler has bowed to Yahweh through the witness of Daniel. 
We don't know the ripples of this decree that went out. But can you imagine, as everyone in the Persian Empire, that was one of the largest, that was the largest empire at that time, as everyone received this decree in the Persian Empire and heard the story of the lion's den. Can you imagine? I have to imagine that thousands of people from every nation came to know Yahweh as the one true God, the one that could stop the lion's mouth, the one that could heal and and do a miraculous thing. Daniel lived a life of being ordinary, a life of humble service, speaking truth, consistent character, and servant prayers. That is who Daniel was. We make him out to be this incredible hero of the faith that was bold and unshakable. But his character was formed through small humble, seemingly insignificant, often unseen, repeated actions over a long period of time. Ordinary behavior. Our courage today is seen in this. Our courage from this passage that we can feel today is from here. Our courage can be felt in being ordinary in the face of everything in our culture. I agree that Daniel is an incredible man of God. But the reality is he's more of a a Mordecai Ham than a Billy Graham. Y'all know Mordecai Ham? Big fans of Mordecai Ham? Anybody? Anybody know who Mordecai is? So Mordecai Ham was the guy who led Billy Graham to Christ. And he was known at the time, you know, 70 years ago. He was a traveling evangelist in the North Carolina areas and would go from church to church. But nobody even knows who he really is anymore unless you actually do the work like I do and say, hey, I wonder who led Billy Graham to Jesus and start reading the stories. See, revivals don't start with Billy Graham's. We make people like Billy Graham or Matt Chandler or Greg Laurie or or whoever it is out to be these super saints and celebrities of Christianity. But Billy Graham wouldn't have filled L.A. Coliseum with 134,000 people if somebody wouldn't have faithfully shared Jesus with him. If his parents wouldn't have been faithfully praying for him. It just wouldn't have happened. No one, would have, no one would have known him if those things would have happened. Billy Graham is just as important to start a revival as you are. When you sit at home and pray for the leaders of this church, you are helping to start a revival. When you share your faith with your co-workers, you are planting seeds that could be leading to the next great revival. You have no idea who you're interacting with and talking to. You could be talking to the next Billy Graham. You could be sharing the gospel with the next Joey Weber. And I'm not saying I'm even close to playing fields with that. But just saying, 20 years ago, the people that I used to bump into, if they would have been sharing Jesus with me, they would have had no idea that I could be here today. And you don't either. Do you know what this is? Can you even see what's in there? Yeah, you can see. Those are seeds. You know what kind of seeds these are? Huh? Mustard. You'd think so because that's a good biblical theme. No. Um, go ahead and pop my picture up. This is a redwood seed. This tiny little thing is a redwood seed. 
And when you look at that picture behind me, you start to forget that it had to come from one tiny little seed. And after many, many years, this little seed grows into that. But it doesn't happen overnight. We don't plant this seed and tomorrow have a 300-foot redwood tomorrow, or even next month, or even next year. It takes years of light and water and care for that tiny seed to grow into something extraordinary. God often uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. You are all just like these redwood seeds. You all have the potential to do something extraordinary. And that extraordinary event doesn't have to be preaching the gospel to 134,000 people. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. That is not what God always sees as extraordinary. It is extraordinary when you teach your children to follow Jesus. It is extraordinary when you serve sacrificially and care for people around you in your church and in your community. It is extraordinary when you share the hope of the cross with one person. When you tell one person about Jesus, that is extraordinary and God can do it in miraculous. We use it for miraculous things. Prayer, consistency, truth, and humility are what lead to the extraordinary. We can constantly complain about the world around us. We can live in fear about what may be next and constantly just live like that. Constantly looking back and saying, I wish things were like it used to be. I wish that this wouldn't be so bad. We can live that way. We can complain about political leaders and and wish that things would go back to the good old days. We can constantly reminisce about the good old days. Or we can be more like Daniel. We can understand that the world wasn't that great 50, 100, 2,000 years ago. And it's only going to get worse. Read the end of this book. It's only going to get worse. I promise that. The Bible promises that. But in the meantime, while we are here, we are called to make disciples. Our mission here at Stonebridge Church, for those of you who may not know it, I'm pretty sure it's in your bulletin. If you flip, I don't know where it's at in the bulletin because I don't look at it that often either. But our mission here at Stonebridge Church is to help people know and obey Jesus, to help the next generation specifically. But we want to help all people in Boone and the surrounding communities and across the world to know and obey Jesus. That know is first for a very important reason. People have to know the love of Jesus, the forgiveness, the salvation, the story of the cross. They have to know Jesus in an intimate way before we start beating them up with commands and and throwing don't do this and don't do these bad things. And before we try to get them to obey commands, they have to know who they're obeying. The God of the universe, the King of Kings. That is when obedience can come. When you fall in love with Jesus and know that he is the Lord of lords and he is the king of your heart, that's when you can just fall to your knees and submit and obey him. Revivals start. Revivals always start with some sort of miracle. 
Always. If you look throughout history and you look at all of the revivals, they always start with some sort of miracle. Sometimes it's through shutting the lion's mouth. Sometimes it's through one man being saved. But they're all miracles. Are you letting God use you to plant the seeds for the next great revival? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for this passage. God, we don't know what the words that we say, who they may affect, who, who may, may be speaking them to. God, help us to just be courageous and just know that you are in control of all things. Help us to be ordinary to just do these ordinary things of living humbly, serving sacrificially, praying, speaking truth, be, just being consistent with our morals and who, what we believe in. Help us to decide now who we will obey, God or man. And God, help us to know that when we do all of that, we can expect trouble. God, you will deliver us either from this situation or you will be there with us. Thank you, God, for giving us the courage to face this day and every other day. In your name I pray. Amen.